0: From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project.
1: So the biggest bank is called California
2: Cryobank, and so we just look there.
1: And it's kind of like a combination of Amazon and Match.com.
2: Think about what it means that today a human can meaningfully utter the words, I have a genetic predisposition for X, X being obesity or Cancer or depression or whatever. Now, it sounds like that person knows something important. But what is it that he or she really knows? In the old days, I imagine everyone was a lot more fatalistic about things. Now we have data. Really, really good, advanced data. A scientist can look at a sample of your DNA and tell you what might happen. can give you a, a prediction, a percentage. But you're still pretty much in the dark, even with those numbers. Genetics promised to translate the book of life, but it turns out there's more than just knowing the alphabet, C's, G's, T's, and A's. We also have to know what they spell, and even then the meaning is still far from clear. So what do we do with this incomplete information? How do we make choices with the knowledge that genetic science has given us? Well, I'm Charlie Mintz. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project and our show today, Code Unknown, we'll be looking at a few of the ways people have answered these questions. First, it's a story about genetics as pure possibility, a mother who realizes that choosing a sperm donor opens up way more choices than she was prepared to make. Like, does she want her child to resemble Seth Rogen? Second, it's a story about genetic information and how much is too much when it comes to making a decision that could save your life at the cost of part of your body. Third, we take a trip to the vanguard of neuroscience, the genetic basis of personality. Is there a gene that makes us stubborn? Is so, yeah, huh, yeah, huh, times a million. Fourth, a post-apocalyptic fable. Why would vultures refuse to eat their own dead? Genetics might have the answer. That's our show. Hope you have a predisposition to stay tuned. Now that Facebook is a fact of life for millions and dating sites are normal, it's less weird to think about choosing one's mate based on a few pictures and some text. But now imagine you're not just choosing a mate, but the genetic material for your child. Want a little more time with those profiles? Producer Matt Larson brings us the story of one woman trying to choose the perfect seed for her child in a piece called Two Women, a Frenchman, and Seth Rogen All Walk Into a Bank.
1: Sorry,
0: that's Oscar. Oscar is a healthy, four-month-old baby with blonde hair, fair skin, and big blue eyes. Generally, he's a pretty mellow baby, but today he's feeling a bit under the weather.
1: (coughs) Oscar just got his first cold yesterday. (laughs) That's Oscar's mom. I'm Christina Amini. I'm an editor at Chronicle Books, and I'm here with my four-month-old son, Oscar.
0: Christina is a former Stanford undergrad, and she agreed to talk to us today about Oscar's story. Christina, unlike Oscar, has dark hair, olive skin, and brown eyes.
1: A friend of mine asked me this the other day because she has a little baby girl, and her mother-in-law keeps saying to her, like, Oh, she's just like Bill as a baby. Can't you just see it? And nobody said that to me. In fact, one of my mom's friends said, Oh, he doesn't look like an amini.
0: For some reason, with babies, eyes are often the go-to example when looking for hereditary traits. Maybe it's because things like eye and hair color are so apparent in our physical appearance. Or maybe it's because how we get our eye and hair color is something we all think we understand.
1: I didn't know very much about genes. I mean, I knew kind of basic high school genetics of eye color. I just assumed he would have brown eyes because I have brown eyes and it's dominant.
0: It turns out the model of eye color inheritance most of us learned in high school was wrong, at least slightly. Although we used to think it was determined by one or two genes, we now know that at least eight genes play into the final color of our eyes, and there are likely more. Even though this model was proposed more than a century ago, and despite the fact that we have known for a long time that eye color is a much more complicated thing than we once thought, our desire to make predictions about our offspring hasn't changed. In fact, with the recent sequencing of the human genome, it seems possible that scientists may someday find the biological underpinnings for a whole host of human traits. Maybe there's a gene for being left-handed, or liking pets.
1: Basically, you take it for granted, like, whoever your partner is, you fall in love with them, and then you think, oh, I'm going to have kids with them, and there's no, like, background check of, you know, oh, what was your ancestor's cancer history like, or what are we looking for in terms of your genes? Basically, if Ellie and I could have had kids, you know, genetically together, then that would have been it.
0: In Christina's case, every trait was an option, something she could select. That's because Christina and her partner Ellie decided to search for a sperm donor online.
1: Okay, well, I do want to be pregnant, and she was less crazy about being pregnant, and she's also kind of caretaking in her personality, and I think me being pregnant in her like kind of watching out for me also worked. And so how are we going to make that happen? And so, so we decided um, to look for a sperm donor. And so the biggest bank is called California Cryobank, And so we just looked there. And it's kind of like a combination of Amazon and Match.com. I always thought that a sperm bank would have like all these millions of binders or something that you go through. I don't know where I got that idea, but that's not the case. You basically enter in a search and so, there, you know, there's a database, and you put in, like, blue eyes, brown hair, what ethnicity you are, you know. And so we basically wanted to choose somebody who had Ellie's physical characteristics. That seemed like, okay, that's sort of important, so he looks like both of us.
0: On the other side of the process, the California Cryobank is doing its own screening.
3: I think in general, people are most concerned with a healthy child, and that's their number one priority, and that's our number one priority.
0: That's Scott Brown, Director of Communications for the California Cryobank.
3: We offer a number of services, but the main service that our reputation and companies have built on is providing high-quality donor semen for people in need. We set a pretty high bar in terms of both the scientific screening testing that we do, the educational requirements we have of our donors, um, height, weight. All in all, we want to provide as good a quality and as safe a product as we can for our client. That's sort of the medical perspective. We, we want to qualify guys that, that meet all those high standards. And, and that really eliminates Got about 99% of our applicants. It's usually less than 1% of our, of our applicants actually make it through.
0: This is one of the surprising aspects of the modern sperm donation industry. It's a fairly rigorous process. And the cryobank has come a long way since its founding in the late
3: 70s. Really the big, I think, twist in their business model came in the 80s with HIV. And the majority of donor insemination was done with live sperm. It wasn't frozen. It was just the the doctor had a, a medical student working in his office. And Bob, the medical student, would go into a room, collect a sample, bring it out to the doctor, and he would inseminate patient. The the patients didn't have much say in who the donor was. They didn't really have any choice. It wasn't like you had a a catalog to choose from, but whoever was in the office that day was the guy you were going to end up with.
0: Now the company has three branches, each of which is strategically located near a top U.S. university. In fact, about 75% of the donors come from Stanford, MIT, Harvard, or UCLA.
4: We do
3: require all donors to be enrolled in or graduated from a four-year university. The educational requirements are based on the idea that we want intelligent, responsible young men entering our program. We spend a lot of money and take a lot of time to qualify them. So if guys are flakes and and disappear on us, it costs us a lot of money and also doesn't bode well for the future in terms of them keeping in contact with us, giving us medical updates on themselves or their family, or potentially being available for a meeting with a a child once that child turns 18 and requests it. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's not like the movies where you walk in the door, deposit in the cup, get handed a $100 bill and walk out the door. I mean, you're signing up for, you know, a year, a two-year program. You're getting poked and prodded. You're getting blood drawn every couple months. You have to keep a regular schedule with us. You have to adjust your personal sexual schedule if you are sexually active because you need to abstain for, you know, a minimum of 48 hours between donations, you know, it's a lot of stuff that the average 20-year-old doesn't have to do.
0: The cryobank goes to great lengths to provide as much information as possible to their clients. And each client is looking for something a little bit different.
3: A lot of our heterosexual couples don't want to know that stuff about the donor. All they want to know is that the guy is healthy, how tall he is, and that everything else is safe. And they, want them, they don't want to know anything about him. I'd say the lesbian couples are more interested in that stuff, but I would say by far the single women are the most interested in making the emotional connection to the donor. And, and all those questions about pets and everything else is just because we want to provide as much information as possible because you never know what it is about a donor that's going to click for the client and help them make that decision and have confidence in that decision.
0: Even though all this information can be helpful to people looking for just the right donor, it can also be a bit daunting. Christina explains.
1: I had one friend who made this elaborate kind of chart of <laughs> of every single person that the bank that she liked offered and all the like pros and cons of it. We were not that scientific. Because it's really weird and overwhelming at first, and how Ellie and I ended up doing it, it was... I ended up doing sort of a large screen of, like, I, I chose a whole bunch of people and chose maybe ten who I was like, well, maybe these people, like, we have something in common with, or... And then she kind of narrowed it down, and Ellie loves animals, so it was a total deal breaker for her if they didn't like pets. <laughs> she said that, you know, maybe it's a wives' tale or urban legend, but people who don't like pets, or possibly sociopathic, or, no, no, worse than that, that they may be serial killers. They are doing the weirdest marketing campaign right now, where they are having you choose You can choose what celebrity you want the baby to look like, seriously. So you can be like Bill Cosby, and then you get like five different donors who have something in common with Bill Cosby.
3: It's my program. I actually started the whole thing.
1: That's
0: Scott again.
3: So what the lookalikes are intended to do is give people a sense of, okay, I've got these two different guys. They're both six foot one, brown hair, green eyes, yada, yada, yada. They could be different types. They could be a more sort of macho y masculine Brett Favre type, or they could be sort of a more pretty boy Brad Pitt type, or they could, you know, there's different variables within statistics when you're talking about appearance. And so we thought it would be a fun way to do it. We thought it would be helpful to people and uh, make it very easy to get a sense of what the guys really looked like beyond just the baby photos and uh, the facial feature reports and things that we offer.
0: And like all the other screening Cryobank does, it's a pretty thorough process.
3: Uh, we have a group uh, of employees made up of uh, male, female, age range from probably 23 to 45, different ethnicities within the group, different interests. And it actually helps a lot because if you have three or four or five or six, or usually we have four to six people anytime we're, t- we're doing a meeting. If you all have the exact same interests, you come up with the same list of people. But if you have one kid who's into Alternative Rock and someone else who's in their 40s and watches a lot of TV and the in the 80s and 90s or someone who's in the movies or politics, you sort of get a, a much bigger sampling of pop culture. And so we, we set out from the beginning to be as accurate as we could, which means we end up with the Bob Sagets or the Stephen Colbert's or the Bill Gateses of the world. just so not all just handsome leading men. That wasn't our intent to suggest to people that all our donors look like Johnny Depp, because that just isn't the case.
0: In browsing through the list of celebrity lookalikes, there are a lot of choices. You can get Anthony Edwards from ER or Anthony Edwards of the Top Gun version. If you're into the young, not old Leif Garrett, you can have that too. You can even choose a donor who looks like Biff from Back to the Future. Earth angel, earth angel, will you be mine? My darling dear,
3: love you all the time. As much as the women of the world all wished that we all look like Brad Pitt and George Clooney. We don't. And 40% of our clients are heterosexual couples where the husband is experiencing fertility issues. So they want a donor who looks as much like the husband as possible. If that husband happens to look like Bill Gates, well then they're going to be very happy to find a donor who looks like Bill Gates. And we've actually done extensive statistical analysis of our donors to try and figure out exactly what it is that makes a guy sell. You know, is it, Six foot two, blonde hair, blue eyes, and we can't keep the guy on the shelf. And after an extended regression analysis of 10 years' worth of sales information, we came up with basically nothing. Over six feet is somewhat more popular than under six feet, and brown hair and light eyes is somewhat more popular than dark eyes. But overall, the only thing we can conclude is that people are making decisions based on their own individual wants and needs, not on some general perception of what would be the ideal male donor.
0: For Christina and Ellie, their search was not driven by celebrity lookalikes.
1: It didn't exist when when we chose. So then when I went back and was like, oh, who does our donor look like? And it was like, Seth Rogen? Oh, God. <laughs> like, what if I had had something really weird with Seth Rogen? You know, what if I had some weird idea of like, oh no, I hated that movie Knocked Up, so I'm not, you know, like, and kind of a good movie, whatever. It just (laughs) seems like adding in more factors in some ways would make the decision even harder for people and bring in different associations of like, oh, well, I love that movie, so therefore I'm going to choose that person.
0: Take a second and imagine yourself in Christina and Ellie's shoes. You're basically trying to build a complete person from the ground up. What would you choose? Would you choose a donor you're attracted to or someone you'd like as a friend? Is it more important that your child is an athlete or an intellectual? At different phases of our lives, we have all valued different qualities and different people. How can you make a catch-all decision that covers every situation your child might encounter? Eventually, Christina realized that there wasn't much she could do to guide the fates.
1: I think I just at some point felt like... We had to let go in terms of our control. But, you know, even people who are 100% biologically related siblings can look totally different, be totally different. So I think it was realizing, like, you just can't control it because who knows which of the millions of sperm that are out there are going to, like, find the egg and be the one that turns out to be Oscar.
0: In the end, for Christina and Ellie, it came down to a simple guiding principle.
1: One way to think about it is, okay, imagine sitting on a couch with your 15-year-old son, explaining to him how you chose the donor.
0: And just like Scott said it happened with so many other mothers, they made an emotional connection with the donor.
1: Really the, how we chose was that the person just seemed like he would kind of be our friend. He ended up being 100% French, which Ellie is not. But are like, okay, you know, sounds good, sure. And he really likes music as Ellie does, and he, they ask the question, why are you doing this? And most of the people who are sperm donors are like 20, 22 years old, looking for money. You know, like, I mean, that's fine. They're honest. They're writing that. He wrote that he had friends who had, had fertility issues and so went through the process. And so we kind of liked that about him, too, that he was doing it sort of out of empathic reasons. And he, they also ask a question where do you see yourself in 10 years? And he said that he, he's a p- professor. And so he wanted to be teaching and have a family and have a house with a big library and a summer home in Burgundy. I was like, wow, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> I can relate to that.
5: L'assassin du dimanche n'est pas bien dangereux
1: so, okay, so then I had, um, I called the cryobank and was like, okay, how many do you have left of uh, the donor? And they said, oh, we only have two left. So I was like, oh my gosh, only two left? You know, it was like the weirdest impulse purchase I made of the year was $1,000 of sperm.
0: As I mentioned at the start, Oscar doesn't look all that much like Christina. But at this point, with Oscar safely in her lap, none of this seems to bother her now.
1: I don't know, I just feel so lucky to be able to have a son. And in some ways, I mean, does it matter that he's biologically related to me? Kind of not, even though we went through all of this to make it that he was, in some ways it doesn't matter.
0: For most of the clients that Scott has come across during his time at the cryobank, this is the same conclusion they reach as well.
3: I sort of half joke that, you know, money back guarantee, if you're not satisfied with your child, we'll take it back at, you know, no cost to you. I have never heard of a client who wasn't completely satisfied with their child once they were born. Any of the the issues we have generally are about shipping problems or FedEx, you know, the the plane breaks down and they miss their cycle and, you know, that kind of thing. But in general, once people have their kids, no, I've never heard of anybody being anything but thrilled. People who have had experience with it, I think, are, are... impressed by everything we do. I think when people go into it, they, they assume it's more like the movies. You don't realize all the testing and screening and, and all the, the care and time we put into making sure that they, they have a great opportunity for a, a healthy child.
0: For both Christina and the cryobank, the primary concern was ensuring the best possible future for Oscar. And that means going through the due diligence of screening donors to weed out any potential problems. But in the world of genetics, there are no guarantees And even though we know a lot more now than we used to about how different traits get passed on, there's still a lot we don't know. Both Scott and Christina seem to have learned this fact through their shared experience with the cryobank.
3: Genetics are a mystery. I mean, I I have regular conversations with our genetic counselors to try and understand certain mutations or diseases or things I read about or, or things that we come across. And there's more we don't know than we do know. We know a lot, but there's more that we don't know. You talk about like autism where everyone knows there has to be a genetic component to autism, but nobody can figure out what it is. You know, where is it? On what gene is it? It's just a mystery, and people are working on it, and someday I'm sure it will be solved, but I think we have way more to learn about ourselves and about our genetic makeup than we already know.
1: I think it made me think about just what is genetically determined and what isn't. I still don't know. I mean, how how do my genetics and... The donors kind of overlapped or overlap or intersect or if we both love music does that mean oscar will doubly love music or you know or have a better chance at it or maybe it'll just be that oscar goes to the symphony once and falls in love
0: the only thing christina knew with absolute certainty is that she wanted the best for oscar thinking about jeans meant thinking about the qualities that would give him the best shot at a full
1: life. You know, who cares what his eye color is, but I guess the most important thing is wanting him to be, it sounds like a cliche, but wanting him to be happy, of like living a rich life where he can be his authentic self and feel excited and spazzy, or that he can delight in things and feel like he himself is a delight and that that he feels, I don't know, maybe both satiated and wants to participate and give and be a a part of the world in a in a rich way. I guess that's what I would want for him. Someone once said like, you know, as they saw Oscar like from one month to month two, said, Oh, Oscar is just looking more and more like himself. And I feel like that was kind of the best way to put it <laughs> uh, hi baby. hi ladies ladies let ladies here we go baby what you get your body from tell me what you get your body from baby what you get your
0: body from tell me what you get your body from
2: Matt Larson is a graduate student in biology and a contributor to the Stanford Storytelling Project. Our next piece looks at another way that the science of genetics has given us choices. Just like Christina and her partner could make guesses about the future of their child from information about his father, so too can scientists take information from our parents, like diseases they've had, and make guesses about our futures. Producer Laura Chow spoke to one woman who had her life changed by genetic science.
6: When do you start treating yourself for a disease? When your boyfriend gets a cold, do you reach for the vitamin C even if you don't have a cold? If your parents develop diabetes, do you start eating less sugar? Some diseases, sickle cell anemia or color blindness are completely genetic, but most genetic mutations only predispose you to a disease. They increase your chances of getting schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, depression. When do you start treating yourself for a disease you're arguably born with but won't necessarily ever get? How far would you go to prevent yourself from getting sick?
7: Picture yourself planning the most amazing trip, and just before you get on the plane, the pilot turns to you and tells you that you have an 85% chance of going down, of the plane crashing would you still get on the plane? I decided that I wouldn't anymore.
6: Colleen Lyle is one of an unknown number of women who were born with a genetic predisposition to breast cancer. The mutation can occur in one of two genes, called BRCA1 and BRCA2. Although they're named for their relationship to breast cancer, they also increase your odds of getting ovarian cancer for women, or to a lesser extent, prostate cancer and breast cancer for men. As the gene was only discovered in the late 90s, these genes have been passed down through families for many generations without any detection.
7: My grandmother died of ovarian cancer, And like most ovarian cancer stories, it's an ugly one where she went in for an appendectomy and they closed her up immediately and knew there was nothing more they could do for her. It had obviously shaken my mother, losing her own mother at such an early age. So she took her own precautions and had an early hysterectomy. What is interesting was when my grandmother died, shortly thereafter, McGill University located my mother and her sister, and said, hmm, you seem to have a lot of cancer in your family. Would you mind donating your blood because we're doing a study wondering if there's a genetic link?
6: So at this point, Colleen's mom goes in to meet some researchers, gives them a little blood, and goes back home to return to her normal daily life again. She raises her four daughters, she sends them into adulthood, and becomes a grandmother before one day the researchers contact her again.
7: 30 years later, 20 years later, the McGill University found my mom here in Ottawa and said, we found the gene. Wondering if you want to get tested for it now. Um, I remember her telling us, saying they had found the gene in her blood and that it was up to the four of us if we wanted to get tested.
6: Colleen and her sisters, who were in their early 20s at the time, all agreed to get tested. They simply made appointments and, just like their mother, gave the researchers some blood and waited. It can take up to a year to get your results back from a BRCA test. Colleen waited three months for hers.
7: I walked away and didn't really think about it until, until that day. When I got my diagnosis, I remember I was the last of my three sisters to get her results. Two had already been positive and one negative. So because the odds of getting this gene are 50-50, I thought, two already do, so I'm probably the two that don't. And it didn't think about it any other way. When I got my – I remember sitting there, and when she said, do you think you have it? And I said, no, and, and gave her the reasoning why. She said, well, you do.
6: Colleen remembers crying, mostly out of relief to have an answer. She waited to find out what the results would mean for her, since your chances of getting cancer with the BRCA mutation still vary from family to family.
7: Once you get a positive diagnosis, You get a letter with that diagnosis. And verbatim, I can remember this line in it stating that I had up to 85% chance of getting breast cancer, but in my family, that rate seems significantly higher.
6: Around this time, some other information was also given to Colleen. Although she and her family hadn't kept close ties with their extended family, the researchers who were conducting the BRCA study had put some pieces
7: together. The geneticist drew up a family tree, and it was very intriguing. What it showed was that all my grandmother's sisters and brother's had died of either breast or ovarian cancer and one woman even died of unknown causes at age 30 but they could pretty much tell that it was breast cancer.
6: Colleen was of course surprised and afraid. She already had two daughters at the time that she feared would be affected by this mutation as well. She found work in a cancer support group to help others who had already struggled with cancer. But like many people faced with a daunting new reality, she remained largely in denial.
7: Being in my early 20s, you know, I really did not understand what it fully meant to carry the gene and how uh, your life forever changes once you get a positive diagnosis. I went on with my life for number of years and I had another child, another girl. I just went on living.
6: Ironically, Colleen's job at the breast cancer support group almost served as an enabler for her denial. Most of the women there were breast cancer survivors, people who had been through treatment and had now recovered. In this environment, it didn't occur to Colleen that cancer isn't a cold or a flu, but a deadly incurable disease Until one day, someone who still had cancer came by to say hi.
7: There was this one woman, Diane, who often came in, she was an ex-board member, and still going through a lot of chemotherapy. She came in just to chat, and she talked about her week last week and how horrible chemotherapy was. And she explained to me something that sounds so silly, but I learned that the Is no cure for breast cancer. That if you get breast cancer, you don't really feed it. You just try and make it quiet and hopefully it doesn't get angry again.
6: Many women diagnosed with BRCA choose to have their breasts removed as a preventative measure. Colleen knew at this point, with three little girls in her care, that she had to go through with the surgery. For her, though, it was an even more frightening prospect than it is for most women.
7: My little sister um, decided that she had had enough and she was going to have a mastectomy and it did not go well. She woke up uh, in a lot of pain, which is, I know, surprises most people, but generally a mastectomy is not that painful. So she woke up in a lot of pain and ended up several weeks later, infection on one side, and they removed, you know, one of the reconstructed breasts. A couple weeks later, infection on the other side, and she had to have that breast removed. There were, there were surgeries in between the removal. She was sick with full infection they had a septic point, which means it's in her blood.
6: Colleen waited as her sister suffered through 11 months of surgery after surgery, physical and emotional pain.
7: To watch someone make the choice, and I had done so much research and talked to so many women and heard that the risk of complications were so low, watching her go through what she went through scared me horribly. It took me forever to to get over that, that mental hump of of knowing that I still needed to do the, the surgery. Um, she still doesn't really have answers as to what, what happened, um, which, you know, is even more difficult. But I knew that I couldn't put my past parallel to hers, that I had to decide that my path was going to be my path. And in all honesty, she's 32 and breathless and, and and unfortunately scarred. She still doesn't have cancer. And you get to that point, even if I ended up like my sister, it's still better than going through chemotherapy. So.
6: Colleen went in for her surgery, just about the time her sister was giving up her chances at reconstruction.
7: My surgery was January 8th this year, and I was definitely scared. I, uh, I thought about my sister the whole time and knew that I just had to focus on, on, on something positive. My surgery was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I was out and in recovery uh, by 1130 I chose not to to keep my nipples. So I have literally um, a line right across each breast. They remove all your breast tissue, and then they insert uh, this expander. And it does exactly what it sounds like. Um, I get saline solution fills every couple of weeks, and they slowly ex- expand the chest muscle wall until I'm happy with whatever size I choose, which is kind of a nice idea. With the expansion process, there's no doubt about it, they are rock hard. Some women call them their turtle shells.
6: <laughs> Today, and for the past year through her preparation and surgery, Colleen has been the founding member of the Hereditary Breast and Ovarian Cancer Group in Ottawa, Canada.
7: The, the existence of being a bracket carrier you, you know, you feel like you have one foot in the gutter all the time. And I wanted to make sure that no one felt as alone and lost as, as I did.
2: Laura Chow is a producer for the Stanford Storytelling Project. So far, we've talked about the decisions genetics has confronted us with. Now we're going to look at how genetics can change our perception of who we are. Producer Angela Castellanos and her friend and colleague Leah Baxt have a calm and rational debate about the following question. Can our genes predict our personalities?
8: My parents came into town this weekend, and as is not too unusual, we decided to play a game of boggle. Alright, let's play.
9: Oh yeah, Boggle, that game with the letters on the dice. Yeah,
8: exactly. So, we love this game, but sometimes my mom and I get really into it. She actually tried to tell me that tear, T-A-R-E, wasn't a word.
9: Leah, is tear a word? Yes, tear is a word. You know, a noxious weed.
8: Anyway, we went back and forth for like 20 minutes, neither of us budging an inch. So I was thinking, I know that curly hair runs in my family. I bet
9: stubbornness is genetic too. Leah, people always throw the word genetic around when they are like someone in their family. Your mom has curly hair, so you have curly hair. Okay, genetic. But stubbornness? Leah, that kind of thing doesn't get passed down genetically.
8: No, it does. My brother is competitive and stubborn too. How did we both end up stubborn without genetics? That proves it. I don't really think that proves it. Oh, come on. My cousin is stubborn, my uncle, my other uncle, especially my great aunt Linda. All stubborn. He's.
9: Not quite. But before we go any further, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Angela. And I'm Leah. And we are both research assistants at the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at Harvard University. In our lab, we are right at the intersection of neuroscience,
8: psychology, and genetics, sometimes known as brain genomics. And researchers in the field of brain genomics are trying to connect the dots between our genes and how
9: we think and behave. But genes are little nucleic acids that make up our DNA. And DNA basically just tells our cells what proteins to make. There's no gene for stubbornness. How can DNA determine our thoughts and
8: behaviors? That's exactly what these researchers are investigating. Yes, we all have this neat little DNA recipe book, handed down from parent to child, for all of the proteins and stuff that make up our cells. But one thing that's helping the researchers is the fact that certain characteristics tend to run in families. But you mean like height or hair color, physical things? Yes, but even more than that, psychological things too. A good place to start looking for genes that have to do with behavior is by looking at the genetics behind mental disorders we already know run in families.
5: Schizophrenia is a good example because uh, approximately 80% of someone's chance of getting schizophrenia has to do with their genetic makeup.
8: That's Dr. Josh
5: Roffman. I'm Dr. Joshua Roffman. I'm an assistant professor of uh, psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and I run the brain genomics uh, research lab here at Mass General.
8: In his research, Dr. Rothman has uncovered an unlikely link between a specific gene and schizophrenia.
5: As it turns out, some of the same genes that uh, are implicated in folate metabolism have also been identified in, uh, as, as contributing to schizophrenia.
8: Folate is a B vitamin that is found in things like leafy greens and broccoli. Wait, so what does folate have to do with the brain? So, we don't exactly know what folate has to do with the brain in the case of schizophrenia, but that's the real innovation behind Rothman's approach. We would have never thought this gene had anything to do with behavior. By searching the whole genome, Rothman found a gene.
5: give you the short name and the long name. The short name is MTHFR. The long name is methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase.
9: Say that three times fast. Methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Methylene tetrahydrofolate
8: reductase. And this gene doesn't code for something you might expect. MTHFR isn't a highly specific protein that only moves from neuron to neuron. It's just a protein that helps your body break down folate. But what does that have to do with schizophrenia? After looking at the whole genome of schizophrenia patients, Rothman found that a particular version of MTHFR actually occurs slightly more frequently in groups of schizophrenia patients than in what would be considered normal individuals.
5: In addition to knowing that this version of the gene is associated with a slight risk in um, your risk of getting schizophrenia, there was a specific relationship between folate levels in the blood and a particular kind of symptoms in schizophrenia called negative symptoms.
8: Negative symptoms are the lack of abilities we take for granted, like goal setting and the ability to make and keep friends.
5: Individuals who had uh, low levels of folate uh, who were schizophrenia patients tended to have the worst negative symptoms.
8: So why not just give them more folate? That's exactly what Rothman's group did. And? And if you give those people with the lowest amount of folate more folate, their negative symptoms got better.
9: Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Wait a second. So are you trying to tell me that if I eat more broccoli, I'll make more friends? Well, no.
8: Although that would be a great advertisement for vegetable growers. The point I'm trying to make is that here we have something really small and unexpected a gene that affects how you break down a vitamin, that we can connect to a behavior. And not just one behavior. Goal setting and socializing are pretty complicated,
9: thoughtful human behaviors. But doesn't that still seem like a jump? Schizophrenia is a mental disorder. It's not a personality, exactly. Yes, but the diagnosis of schizophrenia is essentially a pile of symptoms. People with
8: schizophrenia do deal with hallucinations and delusions, but the negative symptoms of schizophrenia are behaviors people of all walks of life experience, regardless of diagnosis. So, after hearing about Dr. Roffman's work, you have to admit that there's a relationship between things that happen on the level of
9: genes and proteins, like how we metabolize folate, and personality. Fine, but let's go back to our original question. Is there a gene for stubbornness? How can proteins and genes tell me anything about how your mom somehow passed on her stubbornness to you? Well, it may not exactly be stubbornness, but there's another group at Harvard
8: investigating the biology of temperament. Temperaments are commonly known as personality traits, like being introverted or extroverted.
4: I'm Jordan Smoller. I'm assistant vice chair of psychiatry at Mass General Hospital and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School.
8: Dr. Smoller began thinking about the genetic basis of psychiatric conditions after working in a lab studying the genetics of obesity. Once he left that lab, Smoller brought this thinking back with him into the realm of psychiatry in the early 90s and started once again with mice.
4: A gene that had been previously strongly implicated in mouse anxious temperament, we found was associated with human versions of anxious temperament.
9: Wait, wait a second. Did he just say anxious mouse temperament? Actually, he said, mouse, anxious, mouse
4: temperament. anxious
1: temperament. What?
8: How would you even know? There are ways, like seeing if a mouse spends more time hiding against the wall of its cage or exploring a new environment. So, since he already knew the mouse gene was linked to this anxious behavior, when he saw this kind of behavior in humans, he decided to investigate.
4: What we did was to look at variations in the human version of this gene, which is called RGS2, and we found that it was associated with how shy or inhibited children were early in childhood.
8: So the gene was associated with anxiety in mice and humans.
4: And then we looked at whether it might also be associated with personality, introverted personality later in life, which is related to childhood shyness, and found that, yes, in a sample of, of healthy adults, those same variations in this gene seem to be associated at least to some degree with how introverted or inwardly directed people were.
8: So it sounds like we found a gene
9: for personality. I win! So what is this gene doing? How can we look at a little gene and see how it works on a larger scale?
4: And then we wondered, could we see this effect of this gene on the brain?
8: Your brain, as it turns out, has specific areas that become more active when you look at faces expressing emotions like fear and anger. These areas include the amygdala and the insula. Research has shown that some people have more activity than other people when looking at these emotional faces in an MRI scanner.
9: Like... this one. Oh wow, that magnet's like the size of a sedan. The MRI is a
8: giant magnet that uses the magnetic properties of blood and tissue in your brain and some complicated physics to produce images. Once you are in the middle of the magnetic tube, Researchers can show you images, and then take pictures of your brain as a response to the images. In the case of the emotional faces, just looking at them elicits a response from your amygdala.
9: Oh, so instead of just asking people about their anger or fear, which can be very subjective, Dr. Smoller could look at their brain activity in the MRI scanner. And that's where he made the connection from brain biology to genetics.
1: And
4: we wondered whether variations in this gene, which seemed to be associated with how anxious or inhibited uh, people might be, would also have an impact on their brain responses to emotional stimuli. And in fact, that's what we found.
9: So basically, this gene, RGS2, was associated with anxiety and fear in mice. And then the human version of that gene was also found to be associated with how introverted or extroverted people are. But Smoller took that association one step further and found that the activity of the emotional systems of the brain are also associated with this gene. That's right. But genes, they code for proteins, not brain systems. So what does this gene do? RGS2, the gene we are looking at in this
8: case, stands for Regulator of G Protein Signaling 2. Regulator of G Protein Signaling 2. Catchy. And it's not found in one specific kind of neuron. It's found in all kinds of neurons and all kinds of cells. Just like when Rothman found a folate gene for schizophrenia, here we have another pretty standard gene that's affecting a very specific personality trait. So to understand what G-proteins can do in the brain, you have to know a little bit about how brain cells, called neurons, talk to each other. Neurons communicate from cell to cell with neurotransmitters. Take serotonin, for example, which you've probably heard of as having a role in depression and anxiety. Imagine the serotonin floats from one neuron until it reaches its destination neuron. Serotonin can signal the neuron to pass along the message, or stay quiet, depending on the other neurotransmitters around. It can also bind to a G-protein, which is a protein that hangs out just inside the neuron, and the G-protein can take this signal to the inner workings of the neuron. That's where the signaling
9: in Regulator of G-protein Signaling 2 comes from. Oh, I see. So if you mess with the G-protein, you could change the messages the neurons are trying to get to each other.
4: And this, this gene that we've been talking about, puts a brake on that system, so it helps shut down the stimulation of the cell by the neurotransmitter.
8: So, if this gene is faulty in any way, the G protein may not shut down the stimulation of the neuron, and then the neuron just keeps sending signals and being stimulated. It's possible that this overstimulation can relate to anxiety. After all, when you're anxious, you may feel very overwhelmed
9: and excitable, and, well, overstimulated. So, is this then the gene for anxiety? Am I going to one day be able to look up my DNA and see if I'm more anxious than other people or more stubborn or if I can be more depressed? I don't know if I like that. kind of makes me anxious just thinking about it. Well, not yet. While Dr.
8: Smoller and Dr. Rothman's research provide a whole new way of looking at the biology of neuropsychiatric illnesses and personality, the field is still just at the tip of the iceberg with what's going on in the brain. Smoller says there are a couple caveats to his findings.
4: The effects of these individual genes are very small, so it's not like a classic genetic disorder where you have a mutation in a single gene and you get the trait or the disorder. That's certainly not what's going on. There are many genes that each individually have very small effects and probably add up or interact to produce behavior. There isn't the a gene for anxiety or bipolar disorder.
9: Wait, so I was right. There is no gene for anxiety or stubbornness. But I guess you were right, too, in a sense, since we've seen research that can link specific genes to aspects of brain activity and behavior. Like Dr. Smaller
8: said, many genes can add up together to produce a behavior or an inclination. Trying to find one gene that does it all may be like trying to find the one ant that can build the whole anthill. After all, as you mentioned before, we are talking about the brain, your brain, and you don't even know how you are who you are. Dr. Stephen Hyman, provost of Harvard University and former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, has spent his entire career thinking about the brain, and he is still in awe of its mystery.
10: Uh, I don't know comforting, but it it, it would be hard to imagine that this brain that we have that, you know, writes poetry and falls in love and makes war and writes scholarly tomes uh, and drives cars. that has recalls of cars, that, that, you know, it would have to, the, the, the mechanisms would, would, of course, have to be extraordinarily complicated uh, at the level of molecules, cells, synapses, circuits, and so forth. That's all true. The problem is that this wonderful machine also uh, can go badly wrong and, um, and it can be really heartbreaking for individuals and families. We feel a real pressure to do better. I mean, you know, one way
8: During his tenure at the NIMH, Dr. Hyman began looking at genetics to provide a new window into psychiatric disorders and to improve our understanding of biology to improve psychiatric treatment. Since the field began, it hasn't been an easy road to discovery.
10: The neurobiology of mental disorders is exceedingly challenging. I mean, after all, these are dis- disorders of higher cognition, of behavioral control of emotion regulation and frankly we are still in the early stages of understanding the neurobiology so the genetic clues far from being straightforward are going to be very very challenging
8: so why bother looking well right now the only way we can look at the living breathing human brain is by looking at its activity or by looking at the recipe in our dna and people like Smoller and Rothman believe that since we know so many psychiatric conditions are largely heritable our best bet is still to look at the genes and see what they can tell us about what proteins and maybe eventually even what brain regions are involved in these disorders
10: you know if we're really going to understand autism we're going to under- we have to understand social cognition in all its varieties and and by the way i don't believe that for most of these disorders that they are categories distinct from normal i think these are Uh, They are mostly um, uh, variations that are continuous with normal, and at a certain point, uh, people are having enough distress and uh, impairment that we call it a disease. So I think they will shade into the normal and we will learn about the normal and the pathologic at the same time.
8: Understanding brain diseases and disorders with the tools we have can enlighten our own search for the proverbial
9: gene for stubbornness, or just understand more about what makes us human. So when news reports say that they've found a gene for stubbornness, or a link between a certain gene and bipolar disorder, I know now I just can't read my genome and find my personality profile or seal my fate based on these links and associations. All the genes that run in my family, and in my brain, the genes that make me, well, me, They act together in a very nuanced and sophisticated way, and somehow, on the other end of that, I can think my own thoughts and act like I do. And the more we understand about these little tweaks and nuances on a molecular
8: level, the more we can understand and help those with mental illnesses and, at the same time,
9: appreciate the complexity of the human mind. And appreciate why we all, to some degree, end up like our parents. Special thanks to all our guests and the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab.
2: Angela Castellanos and Leah Baxt are research assistants at the Cognitive Neuroscientist Laboratory in the Psychology Department at Harvard University. For our last segment of the show, we've got a short story for you. What about vultures, cannibalism, and genetics?
11: Reports had come in from the Valley of San Tomas. It was suggested the vultures of the region refused to eat their own dead. I gathered this from an oil derrick man my assistant's frog-marched into the lab. I have observed, the man said, prostrate, the vultures around the derrick. The Valley of San Tomas was once an oil-producing region, I said to my assistants. Then I turned back to the man. Continue. My family and I are often forced to shoot the various birds that roost on the old derrick for food, he said, lifting his head until one of my assistants placed a foot on his back. If we leave the carcasses for too long, the lowland vultures, not old world vultures, but members of a convergent new world family, will descend and feed. How are these vultures characterized? They are characterized by their gray, featherless heads and white underwing coloration. Mm. That is correct, I said, and the assistants applauded quietly. The oil derrick man went on. However, if we shoot one of the feeding vultures, the other vultures do not turn and feed on their dead conspecific, nor do more vultures descend. The sound of the second shot deters them, I said. No, he replied. The vulture carcasses are left uneaten even weeks afterward, while the live vultures return to their initial foraging target within a matter of minutes. Warning shots fired into the air have no effect on feeding behavior. I gave each of my assistants an individual nod. And if I were to require a number of these vultures? Once again, the oil derrick man raised his head, and before the assistant stepped on his back, I could see he was crying with relief. Of course, he said indistinctly. We have a number of benzodiazepines we salvaged from a wrecked ambulance. Grind two pills into a paste with water. Brush a spatchcocked bird carcass with the paste and place it by the vulture feeding grounds. Bring me as many as you can. We paid the man in dried meat and digestives and sent him home. When he returned a week later with thirty-four sedated birds and five shopping carts, we gave him another crate of jerky and a few sacks of rice, and told him to hide the food from the hordes when he headed back, possibly by using a tarp. By order of the regents, we were obligated to give this sort of warning to all honorarium recipients. When I was first struggling to put a lab together in the years after the disaster, trucking in the unbroken glassware and electrodes from the empty corners of the university and collecting the few biologists left, the regents had called me into the big hall. They were eating rice offal out of porcelain plates, clattering their utensils against the table to mask the sounds from outside. Dr. McClure, they said. I couldn't reply. I hadn't seen so many shrimp crackers in years. We have a request for you. Oh. I said, I am very busy these days. No, no, you don't understand, they said. We've never felt strongly about your population ecologies and vole breeding studies. Perhaps when we first brought you onto the faculty, we could with good conscience turn a blind eye, but these days there are other larger issues of concern. Issues? Why don't you guess, they said. Outside the window and cross the street, the buildings had collapsed into themselves. Panthers roamed the streets. A young woman dragged a dead body through knee-high ash. I looked back at the regents. Cannibalism, one of them said, standing. We'd like it to stop, said another regent, wiping peanut sauce from his lips. I'm hardly a sociologist, I said, but I suspect the issue is related to the famine. No, the famine is a given. The famine won't be going away any time soon. We'd like you to approach this issue from a biological standpoint. Another man stepped in, saying, You have some experience with what we might term hardwired predilections, fixed action patterns, genetically predetermined foibles, etc.? "'I do,' I said, although my strengths were perhaps in other areas. "'We suspect, because how could it be otherwise, "'that there is some inherited factor that takes humans and turns them to savagery. "'We'd like to knock,' here the man bumped his two fists together, "'that gene out.' "'I looked back to the street, "'where the woman was hacking a leg off the corpse with an eye beam "'From the surrounding alleyways I could see other figures closing in. "'Another regent held up a bowl. "'Gado, gado,' he said. the vultures were accustomed to the laboratory, I performed the following experiments. 1. Removed vulture from cage, shot vulture, returned to cage with other vultures. No attempt to eat dead vulture was observed. 2. Removed dead vulture from communal cage, washed dead vulture, returned to cage. Again, no attempt to eat dead vulture. 3. Plucked dead vulture, returned to cage, no attempt to eat vulture. In none of these cases was I getting the desired result. Consequently, I removed the vulture carcass from the cage and shot another bird, a sparrow, within view of the caged vultures, made a show of washing and plucking the bird again in view of the cage, and then, covertly switching the carcasses, returned the vulture carcass to the cage. There was still no reaction from the vultures, and I chose to overcompensate, arguably, when I sliced the vulture into cutlets and sauteed it in butter and marsala, serving with sliced fontina on a bed of baked kale and sea salt. The vultures ate this ravenously. They had been starved for several days, however, and I felt the experiments were inconclusive. The regents called me in to ask after recent developments, and all I could offer them was that vultures can be fooled into sin, but not easily. Vultures, they said, and I replied that vultures refused to eat their own dead. They were a potentially fruitful model system for this cannibalism isolation project. The regents whispered amongst themselves briefly. Well, said one of the men finally, if you think it's fruitful but to be honest, we're considering other avenues. I have since begun the more sophisticated techniques they asked for. Perhaps the issue really is genetic, I thought, and I set one of my assistants to the task of breeding the vultures to see if we can produce an immoral strain, but progress was slow. Months passed. With significantly more success, I have also been involved in selective surgical ablations of the vulture nitopallium. We dosed the vultures with further benzodiazepines, cut through their skull tops with loose saw chains, and burn away localized regions of the brain. It is here that we have finally produced, as we reach the end of our stock, vultures with most normal behavior retained, but no significant aversion to cannibalism. This is the wiring, then, that our gene would encode. But further advances are unlikely. The regents no longer ask after the project. When I traveled to their office of my own accord as soon as we identified the cannibalism lobe, I was informed by a lone secretary that they have, quote, come to terms with what is, at its heart, a cultural rift. I didn't fight the decision. Maybe I was relieved to return to my voles. To be truthful, however, I suspect it has much more to do with the loathing I'd begun to feel as we removed the vulture's inhibitions. In bird after bird, the design we found ourselves burning into their lateral magnocellular nucleus was the same. The Greek digamma, the sixth, the atomic number of carbon, that which Jewish scholars have identified as the human number. The assistants have noticed it too, and they refuse to perform the procedure now that the symbol has begun to appear elsewhere in molting patterns or fractally in the genetic sequences we run. We continue the breeding experiments on the side, but with trepidation, because we know that with every photograph we take of the birds, the symbol will somehow appear. It is the number of the beast, and of Kimi the day of death, and of the years of this famine, and though the regents refuse to ask, the question remains. Who but Allah could have placed it there?
0: In Scarlet Town, long time ago, there
4: was a fair maid dwelling. She was the
0: fairest of them all,
2: and her name... Well, that's our show today. The show you just heard was produced by me, Charlie Mintz. Thanks again to all our contributing producers, Matt, Laura, Angela, and Leah. Thanks to Max for that story. And thanks to Christina and Colleen for sharing their stories with us. Original music for the show was written and performed by Colts, Boom Snake, and Mothlight. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford's oral communication program, Stanford continuing studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember, you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. As a final note, there is a group on Stanford called HOPES that stands for Huntington's Disease Outreach Project at Stanford. And if you go to their website, hopes.stanford.edu, you can find out all you want to know about Huntington's disease, including genetics, screening for the disease, causes, treatments, symptoms, and current research. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Charlie Mintz. Thank you for listening.